Hi friends, welcome to the Artist's Blend. Today we're talking about some of our favorite scenic design. So grab your mug and let's get talking. Well, hi everyone. Yeah. Well, hey folks. This is another uh, evening recording. Um, but you know, we, yep. we are dedicated, so doing, we're still drinking real coffee for you. <laughs> Today's coffee is from Orlando mm. Coffee Roasters. So we're drinking, uh, their organic, um, Papua New Guinea Timusa, uh, medium, uh, medium roast. And yeah, the, the, the tasting notes say medium body, medium mm. acidity, dark chocolate, brown sugar, caramel, and mm. peach. And I get most of those. We'll talk more about it later. It's, it's. An interesting cup. However, from the first yep. sip, it's been very enjoyable. So, more later. <laughs> uh-huh. And for now, we set the scene. <laughs> yeah, let's set the scene. So, so we, we wanted to kind of just have an episode, like a fun, mm-hmm. a for fun episode. Where, well, not even just for fun, but like it's talking about what we care about. It's one of our more um, yeah. talky episodes. Less educational and more, wow, let's discuss this. If you don't like it, sorry, but here's your preface. Go go to another one. Yeah. Well, you're listening, so you might as well keep <laughs> listening. Um. So, uh, just to kind of set up the conversation. So we've each prepared three of our some of our okay. favorite scenic designs. Yeah. And um, are just gonna talk about them and analyze them and, and discuss them together. Um, for me, I know you also want to talk about like um criteria. For for me, one thing that I the 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 baseline for a great set design, it always like the, the I'm trying to think of a better word than baseline. The the foundational element, the core of what it is, to me, is um, how it serves the play. One of my professors would say that you don't want to you don't want to squeeze the show up the butt of a concept. Uh, you want the the concept to be hand in yeah. hand with your show, and you need it to they they it needs to uh-huh. serve the show, not just be its own thing. So for me, that's like the baseline yeah. of how I start. Um, I look and see mm-hmm. how it serves the show. Is it shoving the butt up the <laughs> concept? Um, and yeah, that's sort of my base thing. And then also just, you know, mm-hmm. the art of it in and of itself, the the beauty, the the lines, the the color palettes, the, you know, all the other things. But my criteria, uh, so I'm guilty of several things. If I go to see a show that I have seen before or that I've never seen, I become enthralled with the set. Yeah. And sometimes it takes me out of the story only because I'm fascinated on how something works or why did they choose this? But that's a whole different, that's a different story. Never mind. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes there's, there's sets that are about correct the set, like noise is off. Like it's its own character essentially, you know, and that's a whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. Beetlejuice, the mm-hmm. house is a character. And they've talked, David Cohen oh. talks about that a lot in interviews. Like it's its own character. Which is, it's supposed to be a spectacle. But um, for me, I really love when um, the set helps tell the story, but more of a, um, if you were taking a car to a trip, the car, it's vital, but it's not the importance. Does that that make sense? Mm. I think, yeah. 
Yeah, it takes you there. It it, it, it gets you there, but it's yeah, not. The it could be just a, a stage wagon. It doesn't matter. It's gonna get you there. <laughs> you could have a fa- you could have a fancy yeah you could have a fancy bandwagon or whatever. Are we living in a time without vehicles? Are the, the stage coach <laughs> and the bandwagon? I've been and- reading an old book. Okay. <laughs> I also love when the set and the costumes work so intricately together to elevate the story mm-hmm. instead of taking away. Yeah. I actually have been to a performance where I was so enthralled with the set that my fiance at intermission was like, Are you okay? And I'm like, yes, I, I'm thoroughly enjoying it, but apparently my face, the end, and nobody <laughs> will see this, but Easton, my, apparently my face the entire time was this. Like, I was so... <laughs> you yeah, you I look was serious. So focused on everything that... It was just, it, it was amazing. You look like you're in the zone, but like an angry zone. And at intermission, I was like, yeah, I'm having a great time. What, what do you mean? <laughs> That's funny. I enjoy a moving set, but I also enjoy an open set. And we can get into that as we discuss uh, different things with each um, design that we've mm-hmm. brought. So I can appreciate it all, I guess. Yeah. Long-winded answer, as usual. <laughs> well, hey, that's why it's a podcast and not an article. Uh, so one of mine is, is a unit set. Um, one is very much, um, well, the other two are certainly yes. not unit sets. Well, technically one is a unit set. It's on a, mm. it's on a turntable. Anyways, yes. so we'll get into it. So, um, my first oh, one ooh. is, uh, from, yeah, I sent you a little, little image thing. So, uh, my first one is Beowulf Bort's set for act one. Um, so to give some context on the story, so this is how um, Dramatists Play Service, uh, who licenses it, um, describes the show. Growing up in an impoverished family in the Bronx, Moss Hart dreamed of being part of the glamorous world of the theater. Forced to drop out of school at age 13, Hart's famous memoir, Act One, is a classic Horatio Alger story that plots Hart's unlikely cooperation with the legendary playwright George S. Kaufman. Tony Award-winning writer and director James Lapine has adapted Act One for the stage, creating a funny, heartbreaking, and suspenseful play that celebrates the making of a playwright and his play once in a lifetime. So this is the story of Kaufman and Hart, who, you know, wrote You Can't Take It With You, uh, The Man Who Came to Dinner, some classic comedies, well, just classic plays in general, not just comedies, but um, sort of setting the standard for American theater early on. Very much. And, uh, yeah, so, and it's James Lapine and a lot of heavy hitters. So this set is, is people, it was one of the most ambitious things hey. ever done in New York, uh, well, ever, just period, not even just New York. So what it is, um, if you aren't at a space to Google it, I'll mm-hmm. sort of describe it. So, um, how do you even start to describe it? So it is a turntable, the whole big, u- it's a giant unit. It's a turn, it's on the turntable. It is three stories tall. Um, most of it is framework, mm. so you have um, lots of metal framing, and some you have some wood in there as well, um, and a few like windows, staircases. It's um, focused on framing, yeah. and it creates some nice silhouettes because of that. Um, but it is incredibly complex. It's almost like um, it's like it's it's a maze yeah. sort of. Uh, on a turntable, but um, it's absolutely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Um, there's three stories, like I said before. It weighs something like a hundred thousand pounds or something stupid like that, yeah. or a hundred thousand tons, maybe. You know, one of those two. <laughs> um, a hundred thousand something. But uh, which one? Whichever one's heavier. <laughs> yeah, whichever one's heavier. 
And Lincoln Center, actually, at the time, um, they claimed that this was the largest turntable in Broadway history. Mm. I'm not sure if that's still true. Um, probably. Or if that was, or if it was true. I mean, it probably is. Maybe it was just a little marketing toot toot for them. But <laughs> where is, where is, I believe it. Where's Guinness World Records? Bring them in here. <laughs> yeah, for real. Get them over here. Uh, but there's six scenic locations and lots of little areas for vignettes, mm. I'm sure. Um, I sadly did not see the show. Um, there's uh, an interesting interview with Beowulf for it. Well, there's a few of them. Um, and I was sort of reading through some of them. And he talked about how for this show in particular, um, they knew what theater they were going to be in much further in advance than normal. Huh. So most of the time, a Broadway show will get like two, two or, or three, three months. months. Okay, oh. <laughs> we're going to go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, was that a guess? That was such a good guess. It was a guess, but we said it at the same time, which is what surprised me. <laughs> That's yeah. hilarious. Um, yeah, no, in the interview, he was like, yeah, you normally get two or three months, but for this show in particular, they had nine months. Oh, that's a baby. Come on now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So literally th- th- more than three uh-huh. times the normal amount of preparation. So they got to use that time um, to labor over details and um, kind of take some liberties that they wouldn't be able to otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, they also had a budget of half a million dollars, so um, okay. that helps yeah. things quite a lot. Uh, I'm just sure. Where can we cut corners but so we can keep the money? No, the the things, <laughs> yeah. The reason, the re, one of some of the reasons why this is one of my favorites is first off, it's just an astounding feat. Just looking at the dang thing, it's just it just takes your breath away. It makes you say, "Wow!" It's just so grand. Um, and then on top of that, functionally, it works so well. Um, this is a play with lots of locations, and it moves very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, originally, Beowulf was talking about doing, you know, bare stage, bringing on props and um, just individual pieces. And he said, you know, I've designed that set so many times, mm-hmm. and we've seen that set so many times, and I just wanted to do something different. I just couldn't figure out what it was. And he said it was the night before his meeting with James Lapine, his pitch meeting, and he started. Wow working on it and then built the scale model uh in a matter of hours before yeah well he was just like boom this is what it is and he just knew that this is what it had to be and um gosh i'm so glad he went with this instead of uh his original thought and another aspect of this set is it's a lovely marriage of and collaboration between lighting and scenic design Uh because the the lighting is able to isolate some areas of the stage Uh and um and utilize the rest of the space beautifully. So, for instance, I'm looking at a photo here, um, front and center. You have the the action is taking place in the bottom floor uh-huh. uh, of the three story turntable, and it's very warm. It's obviously uh, nighttime because there's a little window you can see with the uh, the blinds yeah. as letting in sort of a cool light. Uh, but inside, there I imagine there's candles uh-huh. or some some warm light. It's very nice. And then they have a staircase leading somewhere else. And then the second floor is a window with some laundry uh, hanging on clothespins, yep. um, on like clothesline, uh, which is a little bit cooler. And then on the very top floor, there's like this gate. It looks like a gate, almost like a giant birdcage. Yeah, I was seeing that. Um, yeah, and just the it's just gorgeous. They they're using the height to their advantage and continuing to tell the story all the way up despite the fact that the action is only taking place on the bottom floor. Um, So there's some really cool um, aspects of the lighting design as well that highlight some of the features and utilize all the features of the set. Um, So this is one of this is one of my favorites because it's just stuck with me. Um, It was just so it's just like boom. 
It's so grand. Well, I'm looking at a, a scale model. I'm assuming that Beowulf built, and this is just a picture online. But the best yeah. way I can describe it is if a three-ring circus was all shoved into one thing, and it was a glass jar, and you could see everything happening at once. Because <laughs> I mean, this yeah. I don't know if you'll be able to see that, but like, yeah, I'm looking at the same it's one. It's just yeah. everywhere, and it's fascinating. Yeah, I keep finding new things, and I just want to yeah. know how what. What I wouldn't give for an hour to like just pick Beowulf's brain and just be like, yeah. tell, tell me, was the good? Yeah, and he also there's actually um, online as well. You can find a front elevation, mm -hmm. uh, so it lays out the entire circle um, flat as if it were one big line. Wow, and it's gorgeous. And seeing you can see all of the different um, locations. They're very distinct when you see them laid out as a front elevation. You have the house. On the the left, you have uh, with like a, a lovely roof mm -hmm. and tall windows, and um, then you get to this middle section, which is definitely in a, a lower class area. You can tell because of the um, lack of the beauty mm. of the first section, um, the clotheslines. The there's more metal uh, and crammed edges mm. rather than open space. Um, and then on the far right, there's like a nice. It looks like a theater. Um, well, it is a theater and it's got curtains, but when you wrap all of that around each itself, yeah. it becomes a different entity altogether. Um, because the you know you have the shapes in the back uh, against whatever the the shapes are in the front, and so you have this. It's just beautiful. It's just absolutely beautiful. And I think I think uh, another aspect for me with sets is I love leaving a theater and thinking about the set days like. Sure, the story mm -hmm. is great. Sure, the show is great. But I'm sitting there like, wow, that was that was just like a architect day fever dream, and I want to experience it again. <laughs> yeah. So, oh yeah. my gosh, that's so cool. What's your first one? My first one, only because I just recently saw the production that came through Nashville, is Wicked by Eugene Lee. Ah, uh, yes. The Tony Award winning for best set design for Wicked, yes. But... I didn't realize this. So for those of you who have lived under a rock and found our podcast somehow but have never seen Wicked uh, <laughs> or heard about it. Yeah, I feel like there's some crossover know, right? there. <laughs> You've heard of Wicked if you're listening um, to this podcast. <laughs> just stop now, go listen, then come back. Wicked tells the story of two unlikely friends, Elphaba Throp, later the Wicked Witch of the West. I forget her last name is Throp. That's hilarious. I forget that that's a thing. And Galinda Upland, later Glinda the Good Witch. Whose friendship Upland? Upland. Mm -hmm. Throp, at least I kind of vaguely remembered. Galinda Upland. Upland of the Upper Uplands. That's hilarious. Yep. I totally forgot that. <laughs> uh, whose friendship struggles through their opposing personalities, viewpoints, same love interest, reactions to the wonderful wizard's corrupt government, and ultimately Alphabus Fall from Grace is the briefest description that I could find of the story. Shoot. <laughs> um I you've seen it, correct, Easton? Yeah. Okay, just checking. I found this hard to believe. There are only five scenic places in that entire show. What? Yep. There's only five locations. What? Mm -hmm. They all like, so the school counts as one, but it's many different rooms. Oh, okay. That makes sense. If you say that, that makes so like much more set, sense. Setting wise, but yeah, 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 yeah. I was like, wait, no, already there's the room, there's their bedroom, there's the classroom, there's the hall, there's the, that's three, and that's just the school. Okay, I'm with you now. But, um, Interestingly enough, Eugene Lee said the script for Wicked is like a movie script. 
it jumps around a lot. Mm. I determined the problem was one of realism. Yeah. How do I get you from one scene to another? So I put my director's hat on, and we put together a full model, and I tried to answer questions my way. Hmm. There were directions in the script that said things like, kitchen from the past appears. How does that happen? I thought, how about a, pa- a pageant wagon, which if you're not familiar with, I know Easton and I are, pageant wagons are from <laughs> medieval times. Yeah. And uh, was basically a giant wagon that they could do an entire scene show, whatever you want. Uh, look it up. It's very fascinating. But anyways. It's a really cool time in theater history. When I read that, I was like, oh, cool. I know what that is. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of that in the novel of people pushing things around the community. And then there was the clock of the time dragon, which is featured in the novel. I had always wanted the dragon over the arch because it was clock-like and kind of mechanical. We did the whole show the way it was written and tried to answer all the questions. With this show, I began with a half-inch scale model of the set. It was a gigantic model. There was no drafting to it, just the model. A half-inch fell off the bat. I know, right? Wow. Yeah. Sometimes it's better to just do the model and get the drafting done later, which I've heard from a lot of designers, <laughs> interestingly enough. Like, they don't draft. They just build. I prefer to design I, that I way as too. well. Yeah. And if, yeah. You, if you get stuck, then you go draft. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah. So it was fascinating to read that about his thoughts with creating it. Yeah. But um, the style of it was uh, Edward Pierce, which I'm not sure who that is affiliation with, but I know it's one of the designers. It could be the assistant. Anyways, um, they opted to create an environment inspired by the inner workings of a clock, which I, when I read this, having just seen the show, I was like, that makes total sense because the shapes, textures, colors, and functional aspects of a clock gears and mechanisms contributed to our permanent environmental structure, which defines the stage space. Yeah. You have, if, if you haven't seen it, this doesn't spoil anything, but just pay attention if, when uh, viewing because you have set pieces coming on. Yes, they're tracked, but they come on and then suddenly they're at an angle and they leave the same direction, much mm. like a clock's gears would work. Um, and then uh, someone asked him how the, dire- how the director uh, reacted to the half-inch scale model, Easton. And yeah. the director said, wow, I don't quite see it that way, but I really like it. He told me how to fix it all. I gave him full credit for fixing my mistakes. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Yes. I want to know what it was that Joe did not see. Right? That, that would be another thing, like, to be in the room just to know. <laughs> I just, yeah, I just want to hear those conversations. <laughs> um, interestingly enough, because of the story that it's based off of, this question was asked in an interview, and it said, did you base any of your designs on the 1939 film The Wizard of Oz? And he said, no, I didn't. It is in your consciousness whether you see it or not. Ooh, that's fun. So there's a scene, recreate, you never see Dorothy or anything affiliated with the original story per se, but there's a scene with corn and nothing is exact, it's implied. Yeah. So if you're like, oh, it was the corn, like you're like in the house. No, the house doesn't even look the same. It's very, very bare. Um, it, he went into talking about the materials that he used for the set, and uh, they were interested in natural, realistic materials, not in the newest industrial strength. Uh-huh. Um, and the wood they chose proved to be the perfect material. As it ages during production, it just becomes a better set piece. Versus if it was metal painted or plastic sure. painted to look like wood, it wouldn't add tact and um, dimension to it. 
Um, and the show deck, which was constructed of natural maple, is equipped with seven automated tracks, all lined with steel and visual interest. For poor visual interest. Mm. To stay consistent with our concept of clock mechanisms, many of the automated deck units are designed to reveal the mechanics and operated. So when you have um, a set piece coming on, sometimes if you look further up than where the action is happening, kind of in a like, magician style, if you look away from whatever happening, you might see how the trick is done. You can actually see gears turning as it's rolling onto stage, sure. which is really cool. Um, but yeah, and uh, another thing that I found out about the time dragon clock, time dragon clock, say that five times fast, serves as a symbol of the passage of time and the show's underlying theme of destiny and transformation. It also acts as a visual, stri- visually striking centerpiece for the set designed by Eugene Lee. Um, ha- again, having just seen the show, n- nothing failed. It's it's literally, I've seen it four times, and every single time the sh- the show has been a success. There hasn't been weak points, <laughs> but seeing it again, I just fell back in love with the set design and trying to figure out the inner workings. There was a, a moment before curtain went up that I saw two stagehands climbing up the side, and I was like, "What are they? What are they doing?" And as as an actor, I was like, oh, they must be testing the fly system uh, for the monkeys and uh, for Galinda in her bubble and things like that. No, they're spot ops. And I never knew until the fourth viewing that there are two spot ops that stay on stage the really? entire time off on the wings. Yeah, but you can huh. see they're hidden you, and by- And you see them climb up yeah, during pre-show? Yeah, you see them during pre-show and then they're wow. up there the whole show. And I was like, I mean, if I had to pee or something, I'd be I'd be in trouble. I'd be like, uh, "Can I get a?" <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's that's wicked, and I'm I'm fascinated still with it. I love the inner workings aspect of it all. Yeah. Well, cool. Who you got next? I've got from. Okay, this is from eh. one of my favorite designers of all time. Eh. He is the resident scenic designer for National Repertory Theater, uh, Gary C. Hoft. We love Gary. I don't know why I put a T at the end. Gary C. Hoft. <laughs> Yes. Um, just everything I've ever seen that he has designed, just gorgeous, mm-hmm. amazing, incredible. Um, so the set that I chose, not because I, honestly, not even because it's uh, one of his best necessarily, because everything he does is incredible, but because it's uh, it's impact on me. Mm-hmm. So this was the first time that I had seen a show at National Repertory Theater. Yep. It was also the first time that I attended a talkback okay. um, at a professional theater. Yeah. And um, it was a specifically a for scenic design talkback. So they had yeah. Gary there that night. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and so I had some really cool insights and conversations that I got to see and hear. Nice. Um, so if you don't know the last five years, here's a little <laughs> quick rundown. Um, this is from MTI, who licenses uh-huh. it. Yes. An emotionally powerful and intimate musical about two New Yorkers in their 20s who fall in and out of love over the course of five years. The show's unconventional structure consists of Kathy, the woman, telling her story backwards, while Jamie, the man, tells his story chronologically. The two characters meet once, or the two characters only meet once at their wedding in the middle of the show. Okay. Beautiful show. Amazing. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. It was directed by Jason Tucker. Um, okay. And so I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna describe the photo. I I knew that I had taken a photo because I could see it in my head. And I when I Google the production, there aren't any photos of the scenic design online that I could find. Yeah. Um, 
Nashrab doesn't have anything on their socials or internet or a website, and I couldn't find it on any of Gary's like portfolios. And once the show moves on, they don't really keep. Yeah, yeah, it was just weird. I couldn't find it in a portfolio. Nothing. Because normally you can find something on a portfolio. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, but so 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 what I'm seeing, um, you have uh, in the center, the centerpiece of the show is the band. It's a relatively okay. small band. It's uh, looks like one, two, three, four, five. Six I think seats, it's only maybe? like six six or seven yeah, piece. Something like that. Um, relatively small. And they're uh against a psych that is mm-hmm. um I guess this is probably the pre show look. It's a beautiful like purpley blue, um, against the psych on the back. And then a couple steps down you have um this platform where the keys sit mm-hmm. and then fr- or like an upright piano, and then from there, um, you have a couple steps down into the main playing space. And on the left side of this uh, stage, if you're looking at it, um, there is a, a lighter stained wood that mm-hmm. is it's concave towards the audience. So um, the, the doorway is uh, th- there is a doorway carved into it, but it's this concave layer of wood with like a, a door um, etched out in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the frame of the door is concave as well. It continues that uh uh, continues the shape of the yeah. the thing itself. It's almost like a ribbon. Oh, ver- that's a great description of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so there on the left side you have that light stained wood going across. Uh, then there's a main square playing space in the middle, and then a little bit of a uh, almost like a triangle. It's a triangular prism. I don't know. It's a relatively triangular shape. Um, at the bottom, and then you have the same thing on the other side with a darker wood. And so it, what it honestly looks like is um, if you took like um, a cancer awareness ribbon, the, mm-hmm. the, the very small pieces of the, ribbon the, that curl the around itself of it. once, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's sort of what it looks like, um, just a little wider. Um, and then at the very top, you have um, some really pretty light bulbs. of mm-hmm. I think they're like Edison lights, if I could remember correctly. Yes. You can't quite tell that's from what the they quality look like. of the photo. Yep. Um, and then on stage, there's a single table and a single chair. Uh, yeah. And I think at some point they brought in some other chairs and maybe another table at some point. But Probably. Uh, so very bare bones. But it is this gorgeous set. And in the middle, you can see, so the lighter wood is on the left, the darker wood is on the right. And in the middle, you see those colors of wood, those stains, where they meet, where the ribbons uh, would intersect, uh, if we're using that metaphor um, or that analogy, it's checkered almost with both of those colors of wood gorgeous and what gary talked about is how each of these types of wood i'm not sure whether it was stains or or wood um uh species but he said that each of them represents their stories and their stories are being woven together which is why that main playing space is it looks like they're woven into each other almost like a bread basket like a, a, a wicker basket um but he t- talks about how they start separate stories at birth, and then they the concave is them heading towards each other. Mm-hmm. They meet in this square playing space, and then they continue their stories outward from mm-hmm. there into those triangular playing spaces that we were talking about yeah. earlier. Or almost like, I think the trapezoids, technically. Trap, yeah, trapezoids. Um, yeah, you can see better from that angle. Um, so, obviously, this is beautiful storytelling in and of itself, you have this, I don't know if this is uh, part of his narrative, but I see like the light bulbs at the top from like, is their birth, it's their life. Mm-hmm. And then from there they go outwards, their separate outward. yep. ways, they concave towards each other, cross, mm-hmm. and then exit the playing space. And 
I don't know if that's the specific story he was telling, but regardless, the story itself that he's telling of the the, the lives crossing each other, it's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just elevates the theme of the show, which is that you have these people that are separate, they come yeah. together, and then they separate once again on the other side. Um, and so already they're telling the story um, from the moment you walk in. And, and, oh, gosh, it's just beautiful. It's beautiful. It's not distracting. Nope. It tells it's very subtle. If you it's don't inviting. if you don't know about the show, you wouldn't understand that yeah. necessarily. But after seeing it, I don't think you could not realize <laughs> it. <laughs> um after it's seeing quite the show. inviting. Like Yeah. Everything he does is is intriguing off the bat. Um but it was gorgeous. It was very functional. Since you saw it, I can ask which yeah. grain represented who? Oh, I don't remember. Oh, okay. This was I think twenty sixteen, twenty seventeen maybe. My assumption with knowing the show, because Kathy starts it would be that the lighter grain is Kathy because of the table and chair being there at top of the show. Oh, yes. I do remember that she did start the show in that chair mm-hmm. for, she was writing the letter, yeah. I'm prone to look too much into things. <laughs> I also know Gary is very intentional with stuff. Yeah. And what I find fascinating is on the lighter grain side, there's a step up. Oh, yeah. And there's not one on the other side. Yeah, I don't see one. So- it makes it makes me wonder again if I'm like, oh, is that to represent like Kathy stepping up in life and and moving on and being <laughs> being able? And it's probably just like, no, we just needed something so somebody could get yeah. up to the piano. <laughs> yeah, I I don't recall whether they went so far as to contain each actor to their ribbon oh, okay. side in staging. That would be inter- an interesting take, though. Yeah, for sure. I am. I wouldn't be surprised if they had. Um, Who knows? Because I know. I, in any production, I think it's within the script, but also in any production, the next 10 minutes, the song and their wedding is the only time that uh, Jamie and Kathy are together. Yeah. During the entire show. Yeah, but lovely set, gorgeous design, um, just just beautiful in every way. Mm. Uh, I could look at Gary's stuff all day. Vocal health is incredibly important. Sometimes you get tired, you get allergies, you get overworked, and your voice suffers, which can really put a damper on your work as a singer, actor, or even public speaker. Vocal Mist can help with that. It's a portable nebulizer that uses an isotonic saline to make a cool mist that you inhale. It's been research proven to help the voice stay hydrated and working well. The Vocal Mist Portable Nebulizer is a fast and easy way to keep your vocal cords healthy, give you better vocal stamina, and can mitigate damage from overuse. I have one of my own that I absolutely love, and if you use your voice in your artistic endeavors, I can't recommend this enough. Use the affiliate link in the show notes and get your Vocal Mist Portable Nebulizer today. All right, what you got? My next one is Phantom of the Opera. I, Lovely. I'm not intentionally doing mega musicals. <laughs> I'm going to be talking about the revival version of the set more than I will be the original. And what I can talk to on that is um, the original set, as grand as it was, the revival really, really stuck with me because it was a more simplified set for such a mega show. And it was more intricate. And if I can explain it in any better way, if you think of a Rubik's Cube and you can change different sides to have different colors, right? With the new set, I don't know if you've seen it or not, Easton. 
the new set is basically a giant revolve cylinder. Mm-hmm. And the cylinder opens, splits, turns in half, has things come out of it. <laughs> it. It is fascinating. Oh, I do remember that staircase that came out of the cylinder. Yes. Yes, it just it comes out of the cylinder randomly, yeah. and it goes back. And you're like, what? And then it, yeah. it like splits open into the cave. And I wish I could find photos, but again, it's there's the other thing about this show is there are so many different versions, which is eh. brilliant and gorgeous for something to be interpreted. And I actually have a little bit to talk about um, with a uh, Norwegian aspect that's being done. But that one, when I saw the most recent tour that came through my town, was it, it stuck with me for day, if not a week afterwards. Because mm-hmm. it was like, how the heck did they have something come out of the wall that was not only secure enough for somebody to walk on, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but also you have to tie, each one of those is on a, a wheel or some kind of mechanism to push it out. Like, could you yeah. imagine coming down the stairs? Oh, there's a rung missing. <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> um, and just the aspect of having to make such a grand show simplified as well for a a tour because you only have like 30 people doing the entire show somehow um but in all of the research that i was trying to do for this episode i came across a um article that was talking about a or uh, a version that was being done in folkingtret in norway i'm probably said that wrong but anyway (laughs) um it's actually he the designer was in, named Andrew Riley, and he took the. He has a very daunting task of re- redesigning such an iconic show, anyways. <laughs> but what he did is he took so much more detail into the set and actually took some of the grandeur away from costumes and made them a little bit more simplified, other than Carlotta, who is the diva and over-the-top anyways, so eh. all of her costume pieces are... Um, he, he went all out on that, in, in a sense. But <laughs> in an interview, uh, someone asked him, the set design for the new Norwegian production is a rather more literal approach compared to the more abstract original design by mm-hmm. Maria Bjornsson, I believe is how you say it. Um, and it is more textured and based in real world. Many elements are inspired by the actual... Uh, Palace Garnier in Paris with some of my own inventions like the Phantom's Lair which the best way to describe it picture if you carved an entire pipe organ face out of stone that's what they made it look like Mm. they made it look like it was a rock wall that had been chiseled and it was just this grand organ and it um it was never the case of trying to be better than the original, but more a question of how can we do this differently. We mm-hmm. all have tremendous respect for the original production. Um, they had very little time when they had to do it. Um, I believe I read in the article, I cut it out of my notes, but I believe in the article he only had like a month and a half. Whoa, to design? To redesign all, all of wow. this and design and build it. It was him, it was a team, but uh, Andrew's the one that's credited. Whoa. But it was like, what? I, I wouldn't want to do that. Wait, sorry, I have to clarify again. To yeah. to design and build? Yes, design and build. The whole top to bottom, here's mm-hmm. the set. But he's got to do it twice. So the second time he was able to refine and he had a mo- little bit more time. So okay. this, I think At this article was done about the second time. 
But okay. uh, again, I think the first time he had about that much time, and it was like, wow. okay. <laughs> yeah. But even then, to, to, to present something even usable for that large of a show mm-hmm. in a month and a half, going yeah, from zero like, concept to finished product, that's incredible. Come on incredible. Um, the main premise with this version is that it never leaves the opera house, which I found fascinating. I don't know, again, hmm. if you've seen any production, there's many, many different locations, but with this one, yeah. it never leaves the opera house. So there's no graveyard scene where she sings, wishing you were somehow here again. She goes up to the rooftop. Oh, that's right. So, and it's a, it's a giant dome style rooftop instead of like, statues and things like that yeah i totally forgot i i'd seen i've seen it it was years ago i vaguely remember it it's okay yeah <laughs> it's okay but instead of wow, this random yeah. graveyard scene they just had her going back up to the rooftop which mm. i love the the idea of it all happening under one roof yeah <laughs> but uh, <laughs> or on top of the roof so he later on went on to talked to after a meeting with uh, other designers and the director, he went off and studied the script again while listening <laughs> to the music obsessively again <laughs> while making quick sketches of scenes. And he usually, uh, he said, I usually do not do too much sketching. Again, we have a designer who doesn't like to sketch or draft. They just build. Yeah. And uh, he likes to work with physical models. It's much easier to see how something works when you can see it from all sides and quickly yeah. readjust it. Um, and then this ties to what we sort of said at the beginning of the episode, or I said, about how costumes and the set can work together. But this was talking about uh, the costume designs for this production were more simplified and based in realism but it was what was the approach to design it. And he said, I tend to design the sets first so I can find the correct look and color scheme. This is not to say that the sets have superiority. I actually feel like my first love of designing costumes. I yeah. have tended to keep the costumes sleeker without going too much over the embellishment, which can get quite heavy, except for Clara Lata's where I went all out. Mm-hmm. And he said, again, we wanted to take him out, uh, He, um, him in the sense of Phantom, they wanted to take him out of the magic realm he sort of lives in as this yeah. figurative character, and they wanted to bring him into the realism. He's a real mm-hmm. person, and we wanted to capture that, and the uh, misguided composer. He mm-hmm. is less formal in his entire, more daywear clothing for that time period, except for the Norwegian production and um, where he added a coat. He loved coats, mm-hmm. apparently. Um <laughs> But for the Red Death costume, which any Phantom fan will rave and rant about, uh, he wanted to try something different with reference Mephistopheles and looking at the pictures. So the Red Death in Broadway's productions is is very grand and puffy like this. Yeah. With their production, it was more of just like a red suit that is tight and very sleek. And it has like these massive tails that come out. And it's more of a, a statement of I'm here, I'm in charge. He said that he uh, used force perspective in the sets, which I've seen a lot of used in any Phantoms because you're trying to create these massive, this massive opera house in a tiny theater anywhere you're trying to do the production. It's hard, so you got to use a little bit of force perspective. However, I learned that it was in slight homage to Maria Bjornsson, who loved using it in her designs, especially in the original Phantom. And mm. they were always interested in the force perspective within the designs itself. So that's sort of what I have on the newest renditions of Phantom. But I also, there was a recent production 
I could be completely wrong, but I think it was in Paris. And it was an open stage, outdoor, completely uncovered. And in fact, I know it wasn't Paris, but I know it was in over in Europe somewhere. Completely open stair. There was one staircase that goes up the side. All of the actors had to be trained in swimming and everything like that. If it rained, the show went on. All of their costumes mm. were weatherproofed for such an emergency. Wow. And there's there's photos of it just absolutely downpouring. And they're out there just drenched, but they're singing. Sounds and I'm like, like sickness waiting to happen. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> As a performer, I'm like, wait, no, I remember seeing, I don't know if it was a TikTok or a YouTube video, or I remember seeing mm-hmm. something about this a few years yep. ago. And they like oh, have Lord. real fire on stage. And I'm like, that just sounds very dangerous. <laughs> yeah. I'd say like, rain pays, rain pays. Let's yes, finish the yes, show. Let's go. <laughs> So my final one is another one of my favorite designers, Matt Logan, also based in the Nashville area. Yes. Um, designs everything pretty much. Yeah, pretty um, much. <laughs> he's an artist of of many, many, many trades. Uh, he also designs costumes for Reba casually. Um, yeah. Anyway, could you imagine uh, her her big thing where she had like all the gowns and layers, and each one came off. There was another beautiful gown underneath. That was him. Yep. Um. Uh, but anyway, he. He designed uh, and directed, uh, but he also designed the set for a production of The Hiding Place. Mm-hmm. It was a production, a collaboration between Rabbit Room Theater and Matt Logan um, for Corey Ten Boom's The Hiding Place, which was adapted by A.S. Peterson um, for the stage. Um, and so here is the, um, you know, our we've been doing synopses. So here's a little synopses. Yes. Um this is from marketing for the production. World War II. Darkness has fallen over Europe. On a quiet city corner in the Netherlands, one family chooses to resist. Corey Ten Boom, along with her father and sister, hide Jewish refugees and ultimately face the consequences when they are discovered. The hiding place is their story, a story of faith, hope, and love in the face of unthinkable evil. Did you see this show? I did not get to. I'm so sad that I didn't get to. So they they had a a short re- relatively mm. short run last summer in mm, the Soli Deo Center. Yeah. Mm. Um and we thankfully we had the chance to see it. Elizabeth and I ushered for it and so we got to see the show. Oh, nice. Um and production quality mm-hmm. and Matt Logan are synonymous. First of no, all. No, yes. Um yes. just <laughs> or production value and Matt Logan are synonymous. And um Everything that he touches is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> everything, absolutely everything, and this was no exception. Um, they actually did a they they filmed the show uh, and had a special release um, in movie theaters across the world, which mm-hmm. uh, which is really amazing. Um, yeah, but let me let me talk through some aspects of this scenic design and why I just adore it and think it's it's just incredible. So. Mm. The first thing that catches my mind uh, and my eye was the color palette. Um, oh. The there's this rich sea green. I was gonna that, say based off the poster I saw, it just seems like this sea green dark vibe. Yeah. Here, I'll send you a link to the website, and you can see the. If you scroll down, they have some photos. Yes. Um. So the first thing, yeah, yeah, color palette, the sea uh-huh. green. Everything is, I want to say jewel tones. Mm. Um, it's uh, the the primary picture that you see in most of the the production photos. You have this gorgeous green, um, 
And since a lot of the show takes place in their home, uh, the 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 storefront where they fix clocks and, and watches and things, um, you have all these clocks, these gorgeous yeah. clocks um, with this beautiful wood. And so a lot of the um, imagery is you have this green against the, the yeah. wood, which, you know, sets off this lovely palette. And starting off from that place, um, there's also quite a few settings. So there's a train <laughs> station, you have the 10 boom storefront inside the store, you have the 10 boom home and multiple settings across a concentration camp as well in the second act. <laughs> and, um, and so this is another story with lots and lots and lots of locations. It doesn't move very quickly. It spends time in each location. It's not hopping around a lot. Um, once you depart a location, it, it's not. It, it, it's a while before you enter again, for the mm. most part. Um, yep. There's a couple moments of transitioning back and forth. But for the most part, it's not uh, super fast-paced as far as transitions go. And they take advantage of this and really flesh out each world beautifully while also not being indulgent. Mm-hmm. Um they have a turntable uh, front and center. I believe it, it was front. Yeah, it was it was centered. Um, I, I for some reason maybe just because it was it functioned so well, but I feel like it went away in the it. second act and made space for um, the camp and the interesting um, the field and you know other areas because I just remember open space. Yeah. So maybe it's just really great use of the table, or it went away. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was like take I it. don't know theater magic, but uh, yeah. There was a giant, giant turntable, and that mm. was where um, the the ten boom home and store was. Uh, and it's it's made with uh, all of the walls have this semi translucent paneling. That's what and I was so seeing. It's, yeah. That's the yeah the the sea green thing with the mm. framing. Um, these gorgeous angles and lovely shapes, um, and they do some incredible lighting effects with it. And so it shows um, it casts some shadows from behind and. Uh, actually, I'm not sure if those are gobos or if they're actual shadows, but they're gorgeous. The yeah. lines, just oh my gosh, the lines, mm-hmm. incredible. <laughs> um, yeah, one thing that the show does really well is, uh, I mean, the 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 visual pictures and the vignettes are gorgeous. They have some lovely silhouettes, and um, they just use shapes and lines really, really nicely. Yeah. Um, and again, it's it's a Matt Logan production, so it's gonna be pristine and it's gonna uh-huh. be gorgeous. And there's um, no there's no page unturned when it comes to Matt. No, and put it that way. And everything serves the story. Everything serves the story here. I'm not sure if you can still get tickets or see the show somehow or mm-hmm. the, the filmed version in cinemas. Um, I actually I don't think you can. I think it was a limited no, run. I think it was a limited um, run. Yeah. Yeah. If you can find it somewhere, do it. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it, it was incredible. Um. You have Nan Gurley, you have Conrad John Shuck, and you have Carrie Tillis, these heavy hitters. Um, yeah, anyway, this is an incredible production. You can find the the trailer for the film version um, online on their website as well, oh, okay. Um yeah. But they have some lovely coverage of it. But uh, nice. yeah, it was a gorgeous production, beautiful functional set. Matt Logan, I, I, some runner-ups, I, I considered doing... Um, Gary Seahoff's designs for Dolls House Part Two or mm. um, Shakespeare in Love, and then I also almost mm. did Matt Logan's design for Frankenstein, also by A.S. Peterson, oh, uh, adapted yes. by A.S. Peterson. My that gosh. oh my gosh, the also pictures featuring that I saw from that. I know. I was like, <laughs> gosh, it was oh gosh, huh. those are some of my favorite designs. Chef's kiss. Anyway, Chef's kiss. 
chef's kiss we could talk about set designs all day yes um, we could but yeah we should have been set designers anyways uh, <laughs> i still do it on the side i, I know if, if you need a yeah, set to be made yeah, yeah. go give me a call hit, hit him up. i still do it sometimes <laughs> on the side um, um i would like oh, to we were so, talking we were yes. talking earlier about um uh models before drafts and i just wanted to yeah. say something about that one more time yeah. um i don't know if you want to put this in there or we just yeah, keep it here but because it's um, a theme but uh, I I so prefer working with my hands and what like seeing something in front of me right there and then that? going into the drafting and rendering and elevations afterwards. Yes, because and uh, I yeah. actually prefer it because a professor suggested this when I was in my initial scenic design course. Um, they were talking about um, how you know when when you have a model in front of you, you can experiment and play. If you need, if you want to try something new, I mean, that's 12 different pages of drafts you have to alter each line yep. by a little bit and then decide if you like it. Whereas yep. if you're just, you know, you have the model, you just cut the cut the yep. corner or you snip the, the paper and you shift it over a little bit. Great. Yep. Um, And it's there in the flesh in front of you. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you can figure all that stuff out after. But yeah. there, I was doing a set for um, the, uh, a play a stage version of stage ad- a stage adaptation of the outsiders eh. and it was just causing trouble because it's not uh it's a very very much written like a screenplay in that yeah. the settings change consistently and uh-huh. quickly yeah. um and it was such a struggle and had i started with drafting i think it would have been a disaster but because i yeah having it in front of you to make those changes and just kind of play it was like a little playground you have your yeah. little it's a dollhouse yeah and literally. little dolls and you can move <laughs> things around and part try whatever things and see how now. you feel part <laughs> part whatever part three <laughs> sorry lucas and Eighth, i got another one yeah, for you sorry it's okay um anyway but that's but that's yeah. my other thought on that i love it um my final one just to sort of give the cliff notes is hamilton i have not seen hamilton in person even on tour I saw it on Disney Plus. Thank you for that. And <laughs> um, if you don't know, Hamilton narrates Alexander Hamilton's life in two acts and detailed, among other things, his involvement in the American Revolutionary War as an aide de camp to George Washington, his marriage to Elizabeth uh, Schuyler Hamilton, his career as a lawyer and Secretary of Treasury, and his inter- uh, yeah, interactions w- with Aaron Burr, which cultivates in their duel at the end of Hamilton's life. There's Ooh. the entire story in a nutshell. Um, <laughs> this show has 51 numbers in it, and it takes place over 30 years. So you want to talk <laughs> about different locations. That's insane. Um, yeah. The set designer was from delicate ropes and pulleys to sizable staircases that move and walls that grow. Corns built the Hamilton universe from scratch, faux wood and all. So <laughs> when he um, he had to actually interview for this job he didn't just get asked per se and uh within his interview and his pitch he actually uh put uh i'm not throwing away my shot you should hire me was the very end of it <laughs> so i was like i mean if you're gonna hit the nail on that if you're gonna hit the nail on the head with the hammer you might as well say that um but he was quoted in an interview saying hamilton was the lowest running cost of any set that he designed in the last 15 years uh, we pared it down and pared it down and got smarter and better. And the collaboration was so in sync that we created a really cheap show to run even better. Um, he also started Abstract. So from the very beginning, from the first reading of the show, it was this feeling of swirling momentum, which if you've seen the production, you know about the tornado and how that sort of kept with the theme. 
But Corn said, I don't know if it was the hurricane that swept Hamilton in Nivis or the political storm that he finds himself in or his cycle, uh, yeah, his relationship with Aaron Burr. But I always felt like this kind of swirling motion. Yeah. And was also inspired by the Capitol building's round dome and the dramatic concept of operating theater. Corns quickly landed on an essential component of the Hamilton staging, the turntable, which, interestingly mm-hmm. enough, almost wasn't in the show. Really? Yes. I feel like that's iconic. I know, right? Well, not I feel. It is. It is iconic. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> Corn set involves a double turntable arrangement framed with scaffolding and a second-level catwalk designed in the style of the ships that brought Alexander Hamilton from the British West Indies to America. Hmm. The spinning turntable allows the music, the musical to swirl, the choreography, and period garb to leap off the stage, which, in thinking about it, the set is very plain in color. It does have color, and there's obviously lights that give the, the yeah. definition and whatnot, but it helps the costumes to really pop. Because it's uh, the, the, the palette is really limited, and so mm-hmm. it sort of blends together well. Correct. It blends um, into itself. Yeah. Uh, there are other more subtle, subtle components of the two-level set that resulted from Korn's research into the depths of early American history, including the painted floors made to look like rough hue wood and the ropes and the pulleys meant to look like the details of the inside of a boat. Again, giving the example. Um, but at intermission, I didn't realize this because in viewing online, it was just... There was a word intermission, and then the show went on. Yeah, but at intermission, the walls grow, so the team physically brings in eight foot sections of brick wall to add huh. to the entire set, and it expands from Act One to Act Two. They also change out some of the more militant, uh, utilitarian elements of the prop design. We go from rifles and racks to scrolls of parchment and maps and fine china because now they are coming home to govern the country. And to start writing laws. So it's sort of, if if you will, it's sort of a zoom out effect of the huh. set, which is fascinating. That's really cool. But it, it, it was noting the musical follows the Founding Fathers through the Revolutionary War and straight into independence. And, you know, no one sees it. We lose ropes. We tie things off. We boo, uh, yeah, we boy and hunker down and we become the fledging, uh, fledging nation that we are. No one sees it. They see the turntable, and they're like, congratulations, you made a turntable. <laughs> like, yeah. everybody focuses on that so much. But it was almost scrapped because he he went back and forth with a design of a framed picture with all the Founding Fathers and someone stepping through the frame as the start of the show. He, <laughs> he had a concept of the uh, Founding Fathers coming down like pillars to start the show and then moving. Ooh. It had all these different concepts, but then he came back to the turntable the night before, um, uh, they started to like construct and play with the set building or anything like that. <laughs> and they almost did the entire show in modern dress on a modern set. The cast members <clears throat> were going to be in high tops and jeans, singing and dancing amidst an all-black what? set with a metal catwalk. It was going to be a slick modern thing to match the language. But thankfully, the turntable go back in, as you said, became the iconic thing that it is. Um, yeah. But it also elevates scenes like the fatal duel between Hamilton and Burr to new heights by just being the the, the abstract concept with it. Um, It was funny because he uh, made a half-inch version. Again, I guess we're just uh, in the big world. They're like, here's a (laughs) half-inch. Yeah. And he said that it was like I gave the other designers Lincoln Logs and expected them to make a cabin. 
they came back and they had yeah. made a rocket ship. Ah, this was actually really interesting. Um, he described the set as aspirational. Designers have the ability to make really cool and interesting things, and he explained, but you have to always buck against that impulse to try and find the truth of the storytelling. Hey. So as grand as some of the ideas that we just described would have been, he kept coming back to the storytelling, which I think matters tremendously yeah. when when in designing. Um, his don't Hamilton shove it, don't shove it up the yeah, butt. Exactly, there you go. That's the real <laughs> title of this episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, his Hamilton design, he says, subconsciously affects viewers with scale, texture, line, perspective, color. His team uses these tools to subtly affect how an audience member feels. Emotionally, the growing of the walls does affect people, he said. They might have no idea, but it does affect you. The walls are t get taller, eight feet taller. Imagine this room growing like that. So that concept really blew my mind when I was reading the article. Um, the best, that, to wrap up, the best up, compliment Corns ever received involved an actor explaining to him, when I step on your set, I do not have to do any work because I know exactly who I am. See. So I think that says a lot too. If, you, if you're actors, if any audience member can walk in and instantly be... In, in the environment or in the story within your set, much like um, Gary's last five years set did to me. It's like, oh, I know exactly what's going to happen. Um, yeah. Not, mind you, I know the show, but even then, if I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so long-winded answers, as you know, there, there's our <laughs> scenic design. Take hot takes. If you have any sets that we should look at and digest, if you will, uh, let us know and reach out. We'd love to hear from you. But uh, let's talk about coffee, shall we? Yes. Yes. I, for whatever reason, knowing the tasting notes, I got a burnt, not burnt, uh, like smoky flavor. And I'm trying uh -huh. to figure out if it was the brown sugar. But, but the peach came for me on the aftertaste. Like after the yeah. coffee had left my mouth, that's when I was like, oh, there's peach yes, there somewhere. Agreed. Yeah. So, I think the, I think the, Maybe that smokiness is like the brown sugar turned burnt sugar a little bit. Possibly. I think that might yeah. be what it is. Um, but it's, it's really good. Yeah. I it's really nice. enjoyed it. It's fresh. It. You can it, tell. It, it's nice that it wasn't a, as shady as it looked it. <laughs> as far as, as, yeah. far as a place. So, yeah. No, it, it, yeah. it's great. They were super nice, super friendly. Amazing. Um, very we'll kind have the link in the description the so you can check them out. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, th if you're here, thanks. It's It's been a long episode. So. Thanks for sticking in with us. Thanks um, for listening. I believe it is your turn, Easton, if you want to get us sure. out of here. Sure. Yeah. Just keep track. Yes, who knows? Raise your mugs, everybody. Be good beans and drink good beans. Oh, thank you. Toodaloo, everyone. <laughs> Toodaloo. Yes. Go design sets. <laughs> and do the model first. And do the model later. Do the model first. Don't forget the wrapping. <laughs> What's wrapping? <laughs> The Artists Blend theme music was written and produced by Christopher and Sarah Bailey of Well Wishes Productions, a Nashville-based boutique production company specializing in multimedia production, live event contracting, studio, and live vocals. Find Incognita's infamous adventures on Amazon Prime and its soundtrack on all digital platforms.